Amen. Well, good morning, church, and welcome. Actually, I am just blown away. You know, these Memorial Day weekends, oftentimes many are gone and traveling or doing special things with family, and I'm so thankful uh, to see you here, to see how many people are here. Really grateful for you. Gorgeous weather, huh? I know, I know. That was a gorgeous day yesterday, and apparently the Michigan Department of Transportation has officially said that you can now get your snow tires removed. So that's, uh, that's great news. And then in um, September, start to schedule to get them back on again. Today we're going to talk about our need for comeback. And where it all begins, and uh, the, the comeback begins after a time of failure. I want to uh, invite you, if you would, to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going to start looking at chapter 11. Now today, our day and age, failures abound. And we don't have to look far. All have personal examples of failures, and when we've blown it, Our digital age instantly puts failures on the internet, on the news, YouTube, on Facebook. They're out there. We used to think that that failures were relegated to shady places. However, failures are in all aspects of our communities, homes we think that are bulletproof. They're in our government. They're in our workplace. Failures are in the church. And sadly, they are all too common. And the impact from these things are so significant. They impact our bodies. They impact our emotions. They impact our relationships, our families, our trust in others, our reputation, our future. And the people affected by failures are numerous. And the avenues for personal failure are unlimited. And today we're going to be looking at an example of failure from the life of David. And it's the one that he is most noted for, that people understand all the way around. And David had a major failure in the area of his sexuality and faithfulness. And then it just blew up from there. So you're there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I just want to walk through some of the narrative. Here's the backdrop of it. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Here's here's what happened. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. 
David's set up here for moral failure, for sexual failure. And, and I just want to note, here's the backdrop. It, it starts out, typically at this time, kings lead their troops into battle. And that was to be expected of David, here king of Israel. And his staying at home was negatively noteworthy. He really should never have been at home. He should have been with his troops. And then notice, does it strike you a little bit weird? It says, one evening, David got up from his bed. Does that strike you a little bit different? Like, what is he doing in bed in the afternoon or evening? I just want to clear up, he's not a teenager. This isn't something where, where he got up out of bed late in the day. This is something where now there was intense heat in that area. It was, it was common that people would go to bed and take a little siesta in the afternoon, try to get a little cool breeze. And then notice it was the same heat that drove Bathsheba to the roof to bathe and get cooled off in the evening. And so here in the midst of all of this begins this failure. Folks, we have all been at some point of failure. It's only that David's is written about in the most popular book of all humanity for all of us to see, but we've all been at some point in failure. And from failures and from this text, I want to note three facts about it, but then we want to be able to get off of that because we want to be able to see how do we come back from failure. So here's three facts on failure from the text. I want us to see um, as he walked through this, first failure occurs in our minds. Failure first occurs in our minds. If you have your study guide, here's what we're going to be working through. It, it first occurs in our minds. There's a few understandings that, that David worked through. Here we notice he saw her from the roof. He saw a woman bathing. He noted that she was very beautiful. And this percolated where he ended up sending someone to find out he found out who she was, that she was married, and then he continued on in this progression. Go get her, bring her to me, and we know exactly how it all occurred. And we understand from the Hebrew word for saw, it gives us understanding that it's more than just a quick, whoop, I just saw her and I turned away. It was more than that. He saw her, he gazed upon her. There was an intensity to this more than just a glance. He appeared to look for a long time, long enough to know she was naked, long enough to know she was beautiful, long enough to think about it, to say, I would really like to have her. She, he went from look to longing and where that occurs initially is up here and where it lingers up here. Now I just want to walk through a couple things. We all have dealt with this. We all see it. There were a couple things in his life and that we experienced in our life that put us to the point of failure. Number one, we have some natural sinful tendencies. Okay, would you agree with me on that one? We all have natural sinful tendencies. All of us 
You ever notice you never had to teach your child to sin? You realize that there's not sin class. When your kids are together and they both want a toy, you don't have to say, okay, now, Billy, here's what you need to do. Grab a hold of it and pull and say mine. Okay, a little louder, Billy, come on. Man, you are just not catching on. We need advanced sin class. Sinful tendency is natural in all of us. Number one thing going against us. And then here's the second thing that drives us to the point of failure. The very next step is that our thought life can feed it. We have a natural sinful tendency. Our thought life feeds it. And that's where we go from look to longing. Now, there's been a lot of developments in in one's understanding of how this all works. How do we go from a thought to a craving? How do we go from a look to a longing? Why do these things stir such strong behaviors in our hearts? Behaviors that we would go to great lengths to fulfill or even risk everything to satisfy. You ever realize when someone does something and it's, and it's a total failure, even like we look at David and we end up saying, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Because after a while it goes from a thought to an action. It goes from a look to a longing, from a glance to a craving. How do we get to that point? Well, it's really interesting We understand not only do we have natural sinful tendencies, not only can our thought life feed them, but when they do, there's actually something that occurs up here. You ever realize that there can be something that occurs up here physiologically, and and there is a huge development on this. Google it sometime, and you're going to see that our natural sinful tendencies, and when when we park the car and think about these things, they actually carve pathways of response up here in our brain where we go from liking something to needing something look at it is our thoughts and our preoccupation with something begins to carve out ruts in our mind and actually we end up getting in a groove in our thinking there is a natural chemical response in our brain of a release of dopamine and there is this tendency to stimulate a part of our brain that is responsible to process reward motivation and pleasure and let me just tell you here's where here's where this thing has been nailed even in relationship to pornography i read an article this week it says pornography leads to same brain function as alcoholism or drug abuse. There are grooves we can carve in our thinking when we park the car on it. David parked the car. He saw her. He he thought about that. He lingered on it long enough to inquire about her long enough for that person to identify who she was, long enough for him to say, I know that she's married, but go and bring her to me. He went way too far on this. G. 
Jesus said these words in Matthew 5. And it's interesting where he gets to the heart of the issue. It says, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery already in his heart. Lust, our way of thinking, our preoccupation with this, is what God is initially concerned about because it does get far beyond that, but it's wrong. And failure first occurs in our minds. I read a story recently um, about a man called um, Reynold III. He was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. He was grossly overweight. Reynold was commonly called by his Latin nickname, which was Crassus, which means fat. Not really a nice nickname to have. After a violent quarrel, Reynolds' younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold, but did not kill him. Check this out. Instead, he built a room around him in the castle, promised him he could regain his title and property as soon as he left the room. And this would not have been difficult for most people because the room had several windows and a door of near normal size. None were locked. None were barred. The problem was his size. To regain his freedom, he had to lose weight. And here's what Edward did. Each day, he sent a variety of delicious foods to his room. And Reynold just could not deny his appetite. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, he grew larger and when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, here's was his answer. Check this out. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He can leave whenever he so wills. Reynolds stayed in that room for 10 years, was finally released after Edward died in battle, and by then his health was so ruined he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. And here's what it is. In our lust, we first lose the battle toward failure. Our mind develops ruts. We focus on some things we naturally have sinful tendency toward. And that's where we first lose it. Here's number two. We think we can control the situation. I want to move through this quickly, but look at verse um, one. I want to show you some repeated words. In chapter 11, verse one, notice it says David, and here's the repeated word we're going to get to. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent. That's the word we're going to show you. David sent. Look at verse 3. He noticed the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Notice verse 4. Then David sent messengers to go get her. Now here's what ended up happening. She was pregnant, and so David... Verse 6, sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, send me her husband. And he came and David was hoping, hey, the husband will end up having physical relationship with her and then it'll be as though it were his child that people will think instead of me. Well, Uriah wouldn't do that. And then David, verse 12, said, I will send you back the same word, verse 14, 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it with Uriah, and in it he said, put Uriah on the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and died and die. And that's exactly what was happening. Everywhere was this, he sent, he sent, he took control of everything. And this is number two, we often think we can control the situation. The word sent carries this idea. David thought, hey, I'm in control. I can handle it. I'll send for her. I'll get information on her. I will send for Uriah. I will send him back. I will send word that he is supposed to die in battle. I've taken care of all this. He thought that he was in control. And it's interesting here that David, thinking he's in control, he ends up almost a year later thinking I've taken care of all this Uriah ended up dying Bathsheba is now my wife I've covered it all up all is well and notice what happens he ends up finding out he's not in control God is at the end of chapter 11 it says in verse 27 after the time of mourning was over David brought her to his house she became his wife she bore him a son and notice David was not in control, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan. The same wording. You know what? God says, okay, I'm I'm taking over. David, you thought you were in control. I'm taking over from this point. And that's exactly what God did. We think we can control the situation We think we can set up the the parameters of everything. We think we can get away with it by how we handle things. Ultimately, God is in control of the situation. Here's number three. A third fact about failure. We are angered at others' wrongs, but not our own. Angered at others' wrongs, but not our own. Here's how this whole account ends up winding down nathan ends up coming on the scene nathan was a prophet the lord sent nathan to david and he came to him can i just read you the story starting in verse two the rich man nathan tells david this story rich man had a very large number of sheep but this poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought the man raised it grew up with him and his children shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. The rich man did not want to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who came. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives... The man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Oftentimes we are angered at others' wrongs, but not our own. And this is exactly where David was. He was dull to his own failure, but an offense against someone else, he was on it. You ever notice that sometimes 
we fall into the same routine. I've noticed with my own life, there are times I've pointed out other people's worry. They worry. But for me, it's, it's concern. You know? They gossip. But for me, I'm just sharing a need. And then on and on and on, this list can go. They're angry, but I'm frustrated. They hold grudges. I'm just cautious, that's all. There's a sense of justice, but just a little gentler on ourselves. You know, they spend too much money. Me, I find a lot of good deals. And often we're angered at others' wrongs, not our own. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about when he said people sometimes look past a huge beam in their own eye, but they can see the little speck in someone else's. And I know David's life shows these facts about failures. Truthfully, my life shows these facts about failures. I think all of us do. It first starts up here then we think we can control it. And then we see things in other people, and man, do they stick out, but when they're in our life, they just don't stick out as much. And so where do we go from this? How do we come back? Bless you. Thank you so much. How do we come back from failure? How does it all start? And here's the beauty of it. Wherever you failed, whatever you've done, you can have a comeback. David had a comeback. And all these different people we read about in Scripture, failure does not have to be your final destination. It does not have to be your final identity because we can have a whole new identity in Jesus Christ. And so where does this comeback start? And I'm just, this is the coolest thing. It just plops open right from the text. Here we go. David's comeback happened when he, here's number one, when he admitted he was wrong and repented. When he admitted he was wrong and repented, and all comebacks must start with a U-turn. I know that that sounds so simple. But if we're going down a road and we're going the wrong way, Every comeback starts when we turn around. If we keep going the same direction, guess what? You ain't coming back. Every comeback begins with a U-turn. And for David, here's where it started. It started when he admitted he was wrong. No cover-up, no excuses, total remorse for his brokenness. And here's where it happened. Chapter 12, Nathan came to him and said, okay, you know what? Here's the story about the rich man who took the poor man's little lamb and sacrificed it so that way his friends could eat. And David was incensed and said, who is this man? Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the one that took from the poor guy. You're the one that took his wife. 
You're the one that ended up taking his life. It's you. Down in verse 13, here's where David's comeback started. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned. I've sinned. He admitted he was wrong. He was broken. It's called repentance. It's this point of turnaround. I want to show you a couple verses of Scripture. There's a, um, a book of the Bible that's actually a hymnal. It's a songbook. It's called the Book of Psalms. And David wrote most of them, a majority of them. In chapter 51 is a song that David wrote about his failure and his comeback. And notice the words um, in chapter 51, 1 through 4, have mercy on me, O God. Here's how his song went about this very situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Can you hear the brokenness in there? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the big phrase where he comes down to it. He says, so you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. You're right in your verdict. God, you said I'm guilty. You're right. I'm wrong. I am guilty. I agree with you, God. And this is where we get our word confession from when we say, you know what, we got to confess to God our sin. Confession means to agree with God. God, you're right. Your verdict is right. I am guilty. And I don't know why this is so hard. And we see it all over. People find gentler words to what we've done. And we see this on the news or on TV or even with ourselves, people say, well, you know what? Um, I just misspoke. Or I misread. Or I didn't intend. Or I misremembered. Or I can't recall. That wasn't good judgment. In some ways, they're trying to diffuse the guilt. And David said, you know what, God, I'm not even just going to, I'm not going to try to cover anything up. God, you're right. Your verdict says I'm guilty. I'm guilty. All comebacks begin with a U-turn. If we've never made a U-turn, folks, we're not coming back. This is the very moment where David said it's time to come back. He confessed his sin. Here's number two. This is a little bit tougher one. We'll confess, but then we don't like the consequences. And here's number two about David. 
And it shows not only did he admit he was wrong and repent, he humbly accepted the consequences. He humbly accepted the consequences. Sadly, David's sin brought about the passing of his child with Bathsheba. And can I just express this? Because people here have lost kids and people dear to them. I, I don't want you to read into this passage and think that every loss of a child is a result of the parent's sin. It's not where this is going. For David, though, there was a consequence. Not only there, but with his entire family, there was going to be grief and war and battle. And, and all of that consequence came out, and, and David humbly accepted his consequence. He didn't get angry with God. He wasn't resent, didn't hold resentment toward other people. I want to show you that verse, uh, Psalm 51, 4 again. Check how this goes. Remember, this is the song he wrote about his sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. That's where he said, God, you're right. I'm guilty. But here's number two. And you're justified when you judge. God, you say you're going to do something and... That's right. Your punishment toward me, okay. I understand. I may not like it, but I understand your, just, your justice is right. You are justified when you judge. And later on in chapter 51 of Psalms, he mentions you don't delight in sacrifice. I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are, and check this out, broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. He says, God, you're right. I'm guilty, and your justice is right. What you're going to do, I accept it. I'm just broken. I lay at your feet. Here's another way we know that we have not worked through the issue of a comeback. Number one, he admitted he was wrong, but then he accepted the consequence. We know we've not really opened up to a comeback when anger comes during a time of consequence. That's when you know there's no repentance. Now catch this out. We know there's no repentance when we become angry with the consequence when we grumble against what we've lost. Now, have you ever heard of this? Your kid does something, and you say, you know what? That was wrong. And, okay, I admit it. Okay, I'm taking away your phone tonight. What? You're taking away my phone? And then they become angry with the consequence. Or else then they point out inconsistencies. Well, you didn't take away their phone when they did that. Now, just to set the record straight, you know, my kids have never done this. I read this book. It's bad things other parents' kids do. It's eye-opening. It really was. It's fascinating. We know we've not really repented when we will not embrace 
the consequence. But when we're in agreement with God for our wrong, and we're in agreement with God for the decisions he's made regarding them, then we're on the right road. David was broken. He was humble. He didn't blame God. Here's number three, and this is the beauty. This, my friends, is what we don't deserve. Experience God's amazing grace. David experienced God's amazing grace. His comeback happened when he admitted he was wrong and repented. He humbly accepted the consequences. And he experienced God's amazing grace. I just love this. Such beauty in in what is said in chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, here we go. The Lord has taken away your sin. Woo! Isn't that good news? Well, all three of you. The Lord's taken away my sin. Are you kidding me? I know. It's good news, folks. Guess what David didn't deserve? He didn't deserve that. Nathan said, it's gone. You are free. There's consequences, but God is forgiving you. Wow. And he went through the consequence. Then even with the rest of his family, and that's another study for another day. But I just love this. If you're in chapter 12, you got to look down. After he and Bathsheba's child passed, verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. You see the next phrase? The Lord loved him. Because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means the one the Lord loves. Same husband, David. Same wife, Bathsheba. It should have never happened. Their marriage should have never happened. God says, forgive you and then they have a kid and God shows up at the baby shower and says man do I love this kid name him Jedediah it means the one I love Solomon and we know God loves Solomon because he just poured out his blessing on Solomon 
That's grace. That's God. It's in his heart that we turn around. He's not just waiting to beat us and pound us, but he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sin, the Bible says. He wants to forgive. And when we turn around, when we agree with him, God, you are right, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I accept what you have for me. And he blesses and he loves. And I love this because although being a David, I have had fault, I have blown it and failed, and I've needed God's forgiveness. Apart from that, here's the other beauty. I'm also a Solomon. I'm the product of my dad's second marriage, a marriage that should never have happened. And I'm just a little standing example that, you know what, God does give grace when there's forgiveness. I'm a Solomon. Without the wealth, obviously. (laughs) And the 500 wives. um, God loves. That's God, folks. All comebacks must start with a U-turn. Have you had one? And here's how they go. God wants us to make a comeback for our eternity, and he's there. And when we acknowledge, you know what, I'm a sinner. I've blown it, God. I agree with you. You are right in your verdict. And I also agree with your justice. And here was his justice that he sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die for my sin. God, I agree with your verdict and I agree with your justice that Jesus died for me. It is finished. There he is. To renew that relationship with us and him, to give us his love and his blessing and to give us eternal life, folks. That's grace. That's our God. That's what happens when we make a U-turn and come back to him. He not only gives us grace for eternity, he gives us grace for our life. And your life isn't hopeless. You might be sitting here thinking, man, there's no way out of this. Well, there is a way. It's called a U-turn, people. We give our lives to him. We repent of our wrong. And you can have God's love, his blessing, his forgiveness on your life, and not just for eternity, but for now. And our comeback to God's grace starts with a U-turn. The Bible is full of his stories of grace and love. History is full of his stories of grace and love. This room is full of his stories of grace and love, and your life can be full of his story of grace and love. And it all starts with a U-turn when we come back. So where are you at? If you're persistent, I think I want to stay down my road. I just want to encourage you. I know where the road goes. It's a dead end. Do the U-turn. Give your life to Jesus Christ. 
realize that his grace is right there. His forgiveness is right there. God can forgive David. He can forgive you. And pour out his grace and blessing and love on you and on what you do. Would you stand with me? Can we cry out to God for a moment? And if you know in your heart, man, I need to make a comeback. I need to make a U-turn. My path, my road isn't working. It's time to come back to God. Agree with him on where you're at and accept Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You say, well, I'm already a Christian. Well, you know what? Reacquaint yourself with God's grace and his love and blessing. And realize the very same God that forgived you for eternity would forgive you for today. And give you his love and blessing. You need to do business with God today. Is it time for a U-turn? Time to agree with him and get on his side rather than trying to control it all. Let's do it. Come back to him. And if you have and you're experienced his love and his blessing, let's just hoop it up to him and say, God, thank you so much for all you've given. Father, my friends here, we're a bunch of people that either have experienced your love or need to. But bring us all to that U-turn. Keep us in line with you. May we agree with you, not wiggle our way out of things and experience all that you have waiting for us. Thank you for your goodness. And all of East Bay said,